Welcome, this is the Sales IQ Podcast. My name is Luigi Prestonenzi, and I'm on a mission to help salespeople be the best sales professionals they can be. Each week, we'll bring you a different message from thought leaders from around the globe, so we can help you master the art of selling. Never give up. Great things take time. And be patient. Now, I've tried to find the source of that quote, but I can't. So it's just going to be anonymous. But why am I bringing that quote to this week's episode of the Sales IQ podcast? Because this week we have an interesting format. It's a different format. We've recently launched here at Sales IQ another podcast called the Revenue Engine Podcast. And it's hosted by the amazing Rosalind Santa Elena, who is the head of revenue operations for an interesting tech RevOps company. And this particular episode, so we've just launched it and we, we want you to subscribe to it. We want you to engage with it because the content is fire. And this particular episode, Rosalind interviews the founder of Outreach. Now, if you haven't heard of Outreach, which you should have, because this company has been growing like crazy. Um, this business helps sales professional automate and, and, and scale engagement, sales engagement. It's a plug into CRMs. And they've done a phenomenal job growing that particular business. And Manny's story is amazing. And why is that quote connected to this particular interview? Because, you know, when you listen to the episode, and I've had, you know, the opportunity to listen to it a couple of times now, you'll hear they got to a point, there was a couple of key points in their journey where if they didn't pivot, their business would have failed. And there was also a point where, you know what, they almost got to that point of let's give up, but they didn't. They pursued that a little bit longer. And now they're a company worth over a billion dollars and they're becoming a household or not even a household, but a brand that most sales teams know. And why is that relevant to the things that we do? You might be saying, but Luigi, I'm just out there selling a product, a service. Because how many times do we get to that point where we're like, this is close lost? Sometimes all it takes is that, ec- that extra piece of outreach, that extra engagement, that last email or phone call or text message or LinkedIn note to re-engage a dormant prospect, to re-engage somebody we thought was closed lost. And that's what I want you to think about when listening to this particular episode because what Manny has done and what we see time and time again is these companies achieve phenomenal success because of the fact that they just continue to persevere and push the boundaries of what's possible. So I hope you guys enjoy this particular episode because we're really excited to bring this content to you. Um, We would love your support in engaging with LaRosalind's podcast um, because behind the scenes, we've done a lot of work to try to bring this content together. And we want to do this to continue to elevate the sales profession and help you be the very best sales professionals you can be. So please engage with it. It's on our website. Um, it's on iTunes. It's on Spotify, wherever you listen. And we'll make sure that we put the notes so that you can connect with it and subscribe with it. Obviously, we don't want you to stop listening to this podcast, but we, we think it's another podcast that you can hear every week. And some of the people that you're going you're gonna to hear are going to be absolutely amazing. But again, I'm very proud of it because I started this journey to help sales professionals, and you hear me say it every single week, be the best they can be. And I truly believe this content is going to help elevate you 
to achieve incredible things. This episode is brought to you by Vidyard, Vidyard, the online video tool for sales professionals. Vidyard makes it easy for sales teams to turn text-based emails into personal video messages and will help you engage with your prospects and create an incredible buying experience for them, which will ultimately help you reach your pipeline and revenue goals. So do yourself a favor, get to vidyard.com, sign up, and start using video in your sales process. So buckle up and enjoy the episode with Rosalind and Manny. So welcome, Manny, and thank you so much for joining me. Thank you for having me. This is great to be the inaugural guest to your yes. podcast. Yes, <laughs> I love it. Thank you. Yeah, so when I was first asked to start the Revenue Engine podcast, you were literally the first person I reached out to to ask about being a guest. You know, there were a handful of, you know, really inspirational leaders that immediately came to mind, and you were definitely one of them for a number of reasons, which I'd love to chat about today. I did want to congratulate you on your recent ranking of one of the best CEOs at a high at a large company. I saw you incomparably ranked number sixteen amongst all the CEOs, and it was definitely no surprise to me. Well, no, it was. Thank you, thank you for acknowledging that. It, it was a surprise to me. Uh, it was also <laughs> a surprise to me that we're called a large company. I never considered myself a large company. <laughs> That's right. That's right. It was In pretty the, shocking. It's amazing too because it was rated obviously by employee feedback. So. That's always a testament to the type of leader that you are. So, Thank you. so let's get into the, some of the questions. So, you know, first things first, right? When you and your co-founders originally started working together, you were actually focused on solving problems for recruiting versus for sales. So I've actually read that the company was in business for a few years and literally you found yourself with just a few months of runway left. So can you take us maybe just for a few minutes, take us back to that time and Tell us, you know, tell me what was going on, you know, through your mind and kind of what led to that pivot into sales automation. Yeah, the what, what happened was that we tried to solve a problem that we thought we can solve with technology. And that was the recruiting uh, aspect and sort of the, the finding the right match for you. And we realized that recruiting could not be solely solved with technology, that you actually needed a component of sales and marketing and sort of demand generation to, to also to also generate you know generate the demand for uh, employers to meet the, the the candidates and for candidates to actually meet more employers, and we were not very good at that aspect of it, and we found ourselves running out of cash in 2013 at the end of 2013, and and it, it was interesting because it was so precarious and that we we tried different business models, you know, tried SaaS, tried um, you know some low recruiting fee, and then we ended up switching everything over to just, you know, finder's fee, um, just like any other recruiting agency. So it was this one time in which we thought that we're going to, you know, bring in a deal. We didn't bring the deal. And and that forced us into thinking, all right, you know, why are we going to do the deal? They didn't come through. We don't have that much runway left. So we, 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 we looked introspectively and we were very honest with each other. And we're like, look, we're not very good at sales and marketing, but we have to get good if we're going to get out of this. Mm-hmm. And, and we, we dove into our funnel and what was generating the little cash that was coming in. And we sort of quickly resolved that we just needed to generate more meetings. So we had two sales reps and we realized that if we, if we can just 10 X their production and make that production convert in the next two months, so we can actually write this out. And 
So we decided to do that, and we we, we broke that into pieces, and we realized that you know uh, our value prop was right because you know there's tons of recruiters out there; they're all you know very successful ones. So it wasn't that it wasn't that the market wasn't big; it wasn't that our value prop is right. It's, it's just that we're not reaching to enough people in a, in a way that is making sense to them. So that's when we came up with the idea of creating so two workflows: one that would personalize communication at scale. And we did that. We did that by putting humans in the in the in the, in the loop, meaning. Mm-hmm. Imagine, so we built this this really, um, you know, I mean, now it sounds really, but back then it was really strange. Imagine <laughs> your screen split by half, and half of it, I have all the information about you, Rosalind, and I have every, and then I have a, a composed window that has sort of my value proposition, and then as a writer, I'm I'm, word, I'm to come in and write up my subject line and my first and my opening sentence. That's all I'm personalizing. The rest mm-hmm. of the email is sort of like canned. But by doing that, you, you drive two things. You drive a good open rate. And then you also drive a good engagement with the body of the email. And what we do is we, we start cycling in um, people who had English majors or were or, or, or literature majors or people who were just writers that were trying to make it out in the world. And we would pay them 25 cents to 50 cents an email. And they would generate about 10 to 20 emails per hour, depending on their speed and their and their and the quality. And that would go out to people and, and you know in the form of a personalized approach. So you will get these emails, and these emails were, you know, out of the blue, they were cold. But they were, you know, well composed with a lot of information about you that were interesting to you. So the mm-hmm. reply rate really went through the roof because of personalization. And then we built this other follow-up engine, which is what our reach is right now, um, that would sort of follow up on the email automatically if the person didn't respond with, you know, something that looked semi-personalized. And all of a sudden, we went from, you know, from, you know, from having a couple just a couple meetings a week per rep to literally very literally like twenty meetings per rep per week to about ten meetings per day per rep. And the reply rates, you know, went from, you know, a, a couple percentage points to 40% reply rates. So we were swimming in meetings. They were all qualified. And our reps were not able to process those meetings that quickly. So what I tried to do is then, because, you know, at this point, a month has come by. And, you know, we have one month left. <laughs> right. So we decided to go out and try to sell the meeting. So I went to recruiting firms, agencies, and companies that were growing fast. And I said, hey, what about, you know, me generating meetings for you, for your recruiting team, so that you can take that pipeline and turn them into, into, into employees? And that's not a model in recruiting. So, you know, that's a model in sales, but that's not a model in recruiting. So the recruiters look at me like, like I have to head. <laughs> and they were like, how are you generating these meetings? And I said, well, you know, we build this engine that personalizes it, reaches out, whatever. They were like, stop. I want to buy the engine. So, you know, that's what led us to pivot the company to that engine. And our first two customers were luckily uh, Cloudera and AppDynamics. And we both sold into into the recruiting teams. And the recruiting teams only had, I don't know, like five, seven seats. So it wasn't a big deployment. But they were like, hey, you know, this could be used by our sales team. And they have hundreds of seats. And I think they could benefit from this technology. So we went and said that with the, with, the, with the sales team, and it, has, it turns out they had exactly the same problem, except that they were getting paid for it. You know, recruiters don't get paid, you know, per, per, per recruiter, per, you know, per budding seat, but sellers do get paid either per meeting if you're an SER or per opportunity created and close if you're an A. So um, it, it was a quick transition from then on in terms of moving from where we were to selling into sales. And then, you know, we use... You know, we we have built already an integration into ATSs, and it was easy parlayable into an integration into a CRM. And before you knew it, you know, the word sales stack, quote unquote, became a, a thing that people would compare, and we became part of a sales stack conversation. And so I always say that in in startups, you you have to there's you know there's one portion of of skill and three portions of luck, and that's part <laughs> of our luck. 
Wow, that's amazing. And this the opportunity in such a short span of time, you quickly pivoted sort of what you were thinking you were doing into an opportunity that now has led to, you know, years later, a billion dollar company. It's amazing story. We had um, a lot of bumps in between. Yeah. <laughs> never, it's that's, never a straight shot. That's right. Um, so you talked about sales stack. So, you know, sales engagement, you know, obviously is not, you know, necessarily a new term by any means. Um, but I think that it's really an emerging market category, right? It's gaining recognition as well as a lot of traction, especially when it comes to data, you know, analytics and insights, you know, because those all continue to be very, very critical in order to predict revenue, right? right? And I saw as part of your recent um, Explorers, um, Outreach Explorers Winter, your product announcements that now you have buyer sentiment analysis added to your your functionality as well. You know, as the leader in this space, you know, what have you been seeing you know, in terms of trends in the market, right? How have you seen sort of when you pivoted into this kind of sales stack um, industry, how have you seen it evolved? And, you know, where do you see it going? That's a, that's a really good question. And, and it's hard to, so it's, let me start by saying that it, the market is still evolving and we're in, we're in, the, mer- in the very middle of, middle of it right now. There is not, I don't know what the end state will be because, um, you have both the forces of you know people wanting to consolidate tools and innovation happening at an even faster clip that sort of creates a best of breed approach. So I still think that we are in the best of breed uh, approach, but you did see at least one turn in consolidation, um, and you also saw a one turn into people realizing that clearly CRM is not the end all of sales; that you need more. And the first thing you needed more of was data, right? You needed more sort of contact info or charts, um, information about your, your prospective buyers. And, and, you know, there's a lot of companies that came to the space and Zoom Info created a great consolidation play there. And then, you know, you know it's now, now a vibrant public company. But all the other pieces that were in the stack are now getting consolidated too, and to some degree or specialized. So, for instance, when we came into the market, there was a tool for pretty much every modality of communication. So there was an email sort of template and follow-up tool. There was a, a, there was a, a dialer version, you know, that either did auto, auto dialing or power dialing. And, you know, there were calendar appointment tools and there were like, you know, package sending, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. And each of those have to be bought separately, integrated via CRM. And then, you know, good luck putting that together. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, we came in and we realized, no, workflows are, you know, unified, meaning, you know, as a customer or as a prospect, you, you want to be communicated in the way that you prefer, right? Either you know, via, you know, starting with marketing and educated and then moving down to a sales cycle, you want to have a conversation with a rep um, almost right away to brainstorm your problem or any other way, right, you know, via social, et cetera. So given the reps the modality of executing their workflows and their playbooks in one place was our singular insight that sort of, you know, displaced a little bit the single point solutions. Um, now, fast forward to today, you know, there's other singular insights. So for instance, there is a singular insight around, you know, how do you, how you run pipeline? How do you manage pipeline and how do you forecast pipeline? And, you know, that's a singular insight that, that Francis Clary is, is after and that, that there's nobody winning there um, from before. And, and with, you know, companies like Clary coming into the space and, you know, declaring that this is a problem. Now you got momentum and you got energy and you got passion around that particular problem. You know, there was another one that just came out of the blue, conversational intelligence. That wasn't a problem before until somebody pointed out that, you know, it's better to listen to calls and then coach the rep after that. And now that's a thing. And that's, you know, evolving and growing and becoming its own thing. The question is, at what point would this, you know, solutions collide, right? Because 
you know, do you want to coach the rep based on information that you had or based on the call that you had or based on, you know, based on whether you are early in the pipeline or late in the pipeline, et cetera. So you will see an evolution of um, sort of coaching solutions, if you would, like solutions that you use not only to forecast, to manage, but also to coach. And that's going to have all, all of it in it. Um, you know, you're going to you're gonna be seeing solutions like ours that is, you know, in the engagement side, and you're going to see other entrants into the market. You know, Salesforce is not even a player in the market, and now they have a solution in that too. Um, and Zoom Info even has a, a slight solution there. So you will see sort of like avenues of consolidation coming in as people try to figure out how to run their teams more efficiently, how to coach them in the moment and how to even get ahead of, you know, problems before they happen, right? And that's the holy grail is how do you catch things early enough so you can, you know, you, so you can affect results in the quarter as opposed to, you know, coach it today for next quarter's output. And, and I think that there's going to be a lot of a, a lot more tech and a lot more innovation coming out in that direction. Yeah, definitely. I think I wholeheartedly agree <laughs> as, you know, as buyers become smarter, as, you know, sales has higher expectations and even from, you know, from an operations perspective, right, looking for the best solutions to really help drive, you know, drive efficiency, drive enablement, drive faster, you know, bigger revenue and shorter time. So definitely yeah. see a lot of that. And, and and the things that I, I think that you know, I, I was talking to another I was talking to another company a couple of days ago with with Terminus about this this problem. I said there are some 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 principal durable um, uh, facts that will never change, right? So companies will always want that deal to come in sooner than later. You see what I mean? Like nobody wants a deal to come in next quarter; they want it this quarter. Right. You know, so velocity will always, you always need higher velocity. It doesn't matter whether you're, you know, I hear a lot of like, no, I'm an enterprise shop. I'm okay if he deals, you know, you'll take time to come in. I'm like, no, you're not okay. You want the deal right now. If you <laughs> have right. a choice, you will take the revenue right now, not tomorrow, today. <laughs> um, so velocity will always be something people want. Uh, the other thing is you will, you will want ramp, you know, faster ramping reps. Nobody will say, you know, I really want my rep to ramp in, in, in nine months. You know, if you can take a rep, rep, ramp rep today, you will take it. Right. So there's a, a few like, you know, things that are sort of like our true north. That should be like our principles of operation. We will always want a faster deal. You know, money today is better than money tomorrow. Uh, you know, capacity, productive capacity today is better than productive capacity tomorrow. And and, um, and and so we should take that and use that as our as our true north of what is what are the things that are going to influence the market in that direction. Um, so, you know, finding out earlier you know, what's wrong with your pipeline, what's wrong with your rep, what's wrong with your messaging, what's wrong with your positioning, what's wrong with your persona, it's better than finding out later. So whoever develops something that gives you earlier signals is going to have an advantage over everybody else. That's right. Yep. That makes complete sense. That's right. So I guess one of the things I wanted to talk about also, you know, as you're talking about sort of what's happening in the market is, you know, we've, we've all been impacted by COVID right, in the global pandemic, you know, both from a business perspective, as well as from a personal perspective, Um, you know, for outreach and for its customers, you know, with sales teams working outside of the office, I would guess that an AI powered, you know, sales engagement platform like outreach has become more and more, right, of a must have, rather than a nice to have. So how have you seen um, this really impact your business and your customers? And also, you know, as other companies, including your own, you know, look at forward into 2021, you know, what are some of the lessons learned or things that you might do differently next year? Yeah, no, that's a, that, that is the, the question of the moment. Um, and I'm, I'm, I'm curious to hear your thoughts on this, but the number one problem 
of COVID is outside of the human tragedy and you know the mishandling of it is the amount of uncertainty that it has created, mm-hmm. um, and and it hasn't helped the fact that that you know we can't even agree with ourselves of what is and what isn't. You know, as a as a, as a country, we can't even agree to wear masks or mm-hmm. whether masks are useful <laughs> or whether COVID you know is real. So there is this this sort of like you know. Um, this dismissal of, of facts and inability to get behind sort of principles is is hurting, you know, our speed by which we're going to get out of it. And this confusion is what creates, you know, is what stalls deals. You know, can you hire another rep or can you not hire another rep? Like, are you, you know, when I when COVID hit, and, and I'm curious to hear your, your your from your side, but when COVID hit, every VC panicked. And every VC started calling their companies and be like, all right, so where are you? Where is your pipeline? How much money do you have in the, in the bank? Mm-hmm. And, you know, the first wave of calls is like, you know, having two years of cash is a new having one year of cash in the, in the bank. And then the week after was having three years of cash is a new having two years of cash. <laughs> like, where does it end? You know what I mean? Like, I'm not the central bank. I only have enough cash <laughs> to, to, you know, to operate my business, you know, until, when, until the next milestone. But I'm not sitting around hoarding it. And so... You know, there was a lot of, and then that question turned into like, all right, so how big are you going to be the layoffs? Is it, is it going to be 10, 20, 30% of staff? And, and I'm like, you know, how about none? You know, we need everybody. We need all hands on deck right now. Like if anything else, you know, we need more people. We need cooler heads. We need, you know, more empathy towards our, our customers and prospects that are being hit hard um, and not less. So the, um, the tendency of overreacting and the lack of good information and true north during this pandemic has been the biggest problem through it. Um, and and I, I feel like pipelines were impacted because of these, this lack of certainty. Um, what that has done in my mind is that it has forced people to sort of like um, get leaner faster. So, you know, you heard, you probably heard this metric that even though, you know, there's a lot of, new innovation and digital transformation happening. But, you know, from a GDP perspective, you're not seeing a big bump in productivity. Kind of productivity is kind of like, you know, moving up in, in the right direction, but it's not being transformed by the web. The interesting thing is that, you know, we're not hiring as fast. Some, some people are cutting um, are cutting uh, headcount, but you are seeing roughly maintained levels of production. So we mm-hmm. are increasing productivity, but we're just doing it the wrong way by letting people go. Um, and, and, and instead of, you know, creating more jobs and being aggressive about, you know, growth. So I, I think two, two points come out of that. One is that, you know, sales will never be the same. I don't think that you're going to see this, you know, large splurges, you know, loan deal cycles with, you know, expensive dinners and golf outings and whatnot to close a deal. I think that we're going to keep a tie eye on, you know, close eye on, on T&E and we're going to be, we're going to be getting a lot more efficient going forward how we drive you know new revenue and expansion revenue um and i see i think the second thing is that um you as a as a seller are going to get your you're going to get your buy you get you're going to get you know your buyer a lot better i think one of the things that COVID has done is is actually in a weird way bring us closer together because when you're in zoom you know your background as we noticed when we started the conversation <laughs> is your home, you know what i mean and you start conversation with like you know what is what is that you know dj equipment doing behind <laughs> That's right. You know, and all of that, we, you know, I just know a fact about you that I didn't know before. So, you know, that level of getting people to know at the personal, uh, in the personal realm, it's important and it's going to transform sales. And I think in a positive way. So, 
you're going to see a lot less of this sort of like transactional, you know, spray and pray, you know, get generate pipeline, close the pipeline. It's going to be about, you know, how are we doing with Rosaline and what, what is she up to and how, how's her family holding together and you know, can we help? You know, I mean, there's going to be this new level of empathy that we have brought together just because of what COVID made us go through. So anyway. Yeah, no, that's 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 amazing. I think that's um, completely true. I don't think that we're going to come out on the other end, you know, as we look at, um, you know, with the same type of structure, because even as we're looking at planning, right, and thinking about sort of what what our segmentation looks like, what our territories look like, you know, it is a different um it's a different perspective on how to organize and how to structure our sales team kind of in this new model of selling. Um, you talked a little bit about, you know, the buyers and about being, you know, different um, relationship with your customers. But, you know, if you think about on the topic of customers, you know, I've heard you say in the past that, you know, you take a customer, you solve their problem, right? Then you move on to the next and the next. So I think one of the areas that I've seen you've really excelled at, at being is really being a true partner, right? To your customers. You know, I've obviously as a customer have experienced that personally, but I've also heard very similar feedback from others. Um, can you share a little bit about sort of what your philosophy is around, you know, really driving customer success? Because that's one of the things that, you know, uh, with this pandemic, I think all organizations have really shifted to, you know, less about obviously revenue is still important, but less about, you know, going out and getting new customers versus really, you know, Clary, we talk about, you know, bear hugging our customers, right? And really looking to your customers and helping them be successful and seeing how they're doing and what value, you know, that we can, um, we can bring to help them be successful and make it through the pandemic successfully as well. So what is sort of your philosophy around, you know, driving customer success, driving customer value, and how do you see that sort of has contributed to your overall revenue acceleration? Yeah, thank you. Thank you for that question. So the for us, our customers were what saved us as a company. Meaning the 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 the, the incredible blessing of finding, you know, the workflow solution to our workflow problem early on and having people suspend this belief that the fact that there's four co-founders in a very tiny office in Seattle, you know running multi-million dollar revenue engine and letting us help is something that, you know, to this day, I, I cannot forget. And I cannot forget our early customers. I cannot forget our early traction with them. You know, people who sort of this, you know, who believed our vision, who, who saw who, who we were as people and what we were trying to do and sign up early. Like, I don't know, Lars Nielsen, back when he was at Cladera, he's now a snowflake. Um, and there's a few more like that who, who, um, who came in early and, and bought, the, you know, a, a, a relatively rough product that had very big promise and, and we're sort of design partners with us. So for me, the customer obsession is beyond, you know, uh, a slogan and, and beyond a value is, is what I personally and what we as the founder team and now the entirety of outreach owe our, you know, our existence to. And not only the fact that they bought the early product, but the fact that you know, they came back to us and, and they confided to us their new problems and, and allow us to build not only what outreach was at that point, which was, you know, an outbound email engine to becoming a full workflow engine that included every single modality of communication. And it was a matter of them coming to us and, and saying, hey, Manny, I love what you did here. Um, we got, uh, you know, we got an inbound to worry about that we would love to start converting and we need to figure out how. 
right? And then we get into it, we figure out triggers, we figure out persona assignments, we figure out, um, you know, the fact that, you know, sometimes that dial is faster than email, email getting a hold of a particular prospect, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera, routing rules and, and, and other, you know, CRM sync rules. And, and, and so this, uh, you know, earning your customer's trust to the point in which they confide to you their, their, their problems is, is such a gift because people don't come, people, you know, it's very hard for somebody to talk about their problems. They usually talk about their wins and how great they're doing, how I'm killing it, you know, um, <laughs> shop. It's very hard for them to say, yeah, this sucked and, and, and I wish you could help me. You know what I mean? Right. So it takes, it takes you to get to that level of trust. And, and the second piece is that for me, customer obsession is not just about getting to the level of trust where people are telling you the problems. It's when you get so good that you're anticipating the problems. Mm-hmm. I mean, you're seeing around corners on their, on their behalf when they, you know, it is, is sitting down with them and redefining what they think is success. You know, many people will come out to you with a, a, you know, a definition of what success looks like. But if you are a true partner, you'll be like, you're, you know, these two things I see eye to eye, this other thing, let me give you a perspective that I learned from these other two customers who had the same problem and they re- redefine success in this other way and they may work better for you. You see what I mean? Yeah. And, and the ability to, to, to see around corners and to help be a thought partner with your customer is in my mind nirvana. And that is what I get out of bed for. You know what I mean? It's my why. And, and, and to do that at scale and to do that for so many people, is really what, you know, what gives me energy and, you know, uh, and you can only do this on energy. There's nothing else. (laughs) So, you know, I I guess aside from the product and the customer focus, you know, outreach as I've shared with you and I shared with you that I'm such a fan girl, but outreach has an amazing brand, right? Especially for someone looking in from the outside, you know, from my perspective, there's a couple of reasons why. One is obviously the caliber of talent that you have within your organization, right? You have folks who are the leading experts in their space. But the other reasons I believe are related to one, the culture, right, that you have built at Outreach, and two, the champion that you are, right, as a leader. So I'd like to dig into a little bit about the culture first, right? So as you know, you know, I've been in go-to-market operations leadership for 20 years now. And for that entire time, I was also a mother. I started out with two and then later added another one. And so I've definitely had to juggle, you know, work and career and home, family. And, you know, obviously, and it's been up-leveled with the pandemic and everybody being at home. And you, you know, have been a big believer, right, in supporting working parents, as a father of three yourself, yep. you know, you, you have firsthand experience, right? Yep. At trying to find harmony in work and home, you know, as you're building your company, you're building your family, you know, can you tell me about the culture that you've built at Outreach really to help your team be successful? And please include the overnight doula stipend because I'm super jealous. <laughs> um, yeah, thanks for that. Um, so the, the culture of Outreach is that there's two ways to sort of define core culture and, and core values. You, you, you either write your core values as the company you want to become and you do it sort of prospectively, or you, or you, or you write down the core values as the company you want to, as, as sort of the values that you want to keep fixed as everything else changes and you grow and you do that um, prospectively, meaning you look back at who you are and, and what got you there and you want to make sure that as you, as you, become bigger and more people come in that you don't lose that that true north mm-hmm. and and we did the latter meaning we we when we sat down with when we were about 50 people we run down our core values 
And our core values really reflected who the core founding team were as people and, and what got us to where we were and what are the things that we hold sacred. And there's a few, you know, we have a, a, a very similar core values as most companies do, but there's a few that are a little quirky, right? One of them is, is called having your back. That's a core value here. I mean, you have to have somebody else's back. And, and that doesn't mean that, you know, I'm going to allow sloppy work or inattentiveness to a customer, et cetera. But what that means is that I'm going to let you, you know, go out on a limb and do something, you know, new, something crazy, you know, explore, you know, experiment. And I'm also going to have your back when, 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 when you need me, when you, when, 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 when you need it at home. You know, Gordon, my co-founder, had, you know, their first kid um, as we were pivoting. We had nothing. We didn't even have health insurance. We didn't have um, we didn't have the doula service. We didn't have anything. And there's a there's a, a photo that I love, you know, where he is patching up a piece of you know a piece of code from a customer with uh, with his baby and in his lap in the middle of the night. <laughs> you know, see, I mean, typing with one hand and, and with a bottle in the other um, as a father. And and I feel like we all have that sort of memory of you know we doing one thing for for love and the other thing for love. It's kind of our two kids, and and you know, our first instinct when we saw that is, you know, we'd never want anyone to go through it. Now we have money. Now we have momentum. Now we have created a category for everybody else. We have customers. So how do we prevent, you know, what we had to go through from the, you know, from the rest of our, our team members. Um, and, and, and I, I think that has to do with the fact that, you know, as, as four co-founders, we have to be a little bit more egalitarian than if it was just like Manny with one good idea and, found, and, you know, hiring a bunch of other people, because I have to be like, I have to treat them like my family. And, the way you treat family is that you want to make sure that they're okay, that they're okay at home, that they're okay mentally, and that they show up with to work with, you know, strengths, with energy and without worries. And, you know, I'd much rather have, you know, and, and when we hire, we hire the full human. So I can't tell you to, like, leave your personal problems at home and you show up and, like, deliver the work because you're going to come home, you're going to come to work, and you're going to be, you're not going to be 100%. So that's, those were the guiding principles of sort of, like, you know, how do we build a culture of, of inclusion that allows everybody to be their best self at work and at, and, and at home. Um, and, you know, that's where the doula program in is, you know, I had, I had my, my daughter, uh, Mercedes, um, uh, about the second year of outreach, you know, after, after racing series A and, and it was really hard because I still wanted to be present at work and I had a lot of, a lot, a lot going on and, and I, I didn't get any sleep because, you know, babies just don't sleep well. You know? <laughs> and, and we had this idea of like, you know, is there a thing as a night doula? And it turns out there is. And, 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 and once we, after, you know, we hired her and the, the world just changed. I was so much more productive, even though I was at home and, 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 and uh, helping out. Um, so I was like, if I have this, why wouldn't everybody have it? And, and then, so that was a, the impetus of it. And then, and then the, the sort of the, the side effect of that was that, you know, most people are not like me. Most people are, you know, uh, usually it is mothers that bear the brunt of the child rearing. Um, and by, by bringing up this benefit, we were able to remove a blocker for, for uh, young women who want to become mothers at some point to join outreach. And that drove, you know, the amount of women that we can bring into the team. Now those women are, you know, across the board, your managers and VPs and just high performing individuals and leaders that we build from scratch. And, and I think that every great company needs to have a point of view as to what kind of culture, what kind of, uh, what's the makeup of that company early on. And if you don't have a point of view, it will end up, you know, being whatever every other tech company is, which is, you know, mostly white male dominated. 
Um, but if, if you sort out early to decide like who are you going to be and the kind of people you want to attract, then you know when you fast forward you know three, four, five x the number of people, that that growth will reflect your point of view that you had early. So for instance, we are 40, 60 women. 40% of our workforce is women, 60% is men, which is much better than anything else in tech, but we're not done yet. Like we want to get to 50-50 because that's what the world looks like. And we should not be different, any different than America, given that we're a US company. So um, I recommend to every leader to take a point of view of, you know, don't let, you know, diversity and inclusion or, you know, be a, a sideshow. Don't let culture happen to them. It's something that you design and you actively curate. Uh, as as it evolves and as you grow. Yeah, and that's, uh, that actually leads me to sort of w- one of the other reasons I really was excited to have you on the, sh- on the podcast too and be able to speak to you is really, you know, I personally think what's one of the biggest contributions to how amazing Outreach's brand is, is how active you are, right, as a CEO and being a champion of diversity and inclusion. You know, you talked about it a little bit, but, you know, specifically really just the outward support that you have for minorities, um, especially immigrants and women, right? As you mentioned in tech, you know, f- for somebody like me, you know, being a minority, female, executive in tech, right, and especially in revenue, oftentimes, you know, I'm the only woman in the room, or I'm the only minority, or, you know, I'm the only mom, right? Or sometimes all of the above, right? And, and, <laughs> and right. And, you know, honestly, it's like, I've never really thought about it too much, like early on in my career, um, you know, as I was growing my career, but definitely, you know, maybe I was just, you know, maybe it was something to consider and I was just unaware, um, or maybe just naive about it. Um, you've you've obviously you know shared your story about growing up in Ecuador, you know being an immigrant here in the United States, you know, and you know really building a company as you've shared is is really a great makeup, right? Of uh, very diverse, very inclusive, especially in tech in any company, but especially in technology. So, can you share sort of a little bit maybe about how your upbringing and sort of your own personal experiences have really helped shape this culture that you've built? Uh, yeah, absolutely. The um, culture is a is a again is a is a is a design principle um, that that you that you as a leader are responsible for. It's the one thing that you can design that that um, that will scale over time. the The main thing for us, and this is where I divert with other CEOs, is that I don't think that culture is fixed. Matter of fact, when you use the word he, you know, you interview somebody and you say this person was not a cultural fit. I, I take that sometimes to mean that you're driving and striving for homogeneity as opposed to diversity. And that's a very dangerous path to be. Whereas if you assume that the culture will change over time and everybody who joins the company brings in another flavor and you think of your culture as a soup, or like a stew or like a soup where everybody brings a flavor and the flavor evolves over time to become more complex, more nuanced, more subtle. Um, then, then you have a different attitude towards culture. Uh, I'm of the latter camp that I, we, you know, we have our core values, and those are not, you know, you can't validate those. But you know, at 600, we're a different culture than we were at, at at 50 because we just have more people of different walks of life, and that should be celebrated. Because and and then the question is is you know for us is how daring can we be to push the envelope and bring people who are not sort of out of central casting into our fold and and you know how much mistakes are we going to tolerate and how much risk are we going to take in on, on, on behalf of diversity and on behalf of inclusion? And that's, again, a design principle that every 
leader should take on and decide what is their principle of design. Our design principle is that for me personally, I grew up in a very diverse environment. Uh, Ecuador is, is a country of many different cultures and people that came in as immigrants or were there natively. And the result is a, is a very broad palette of colors. And that's how I feel comfortable. Homogeneity makes me nervous. You see what I mean? Like I don't feel comfortable. And I, and I put this out in, the, in another podcast in that uh, actually when I was talking to CNBC that it took me a while when I was fundraising, especially when you come and pitch in, in partner meetings, you know, this long mahogany tables full of white faces looking at you. Mm-hmm. I just don't feel comfortable in that environment because I didn't grow up there. You see what I mean? So yeah. I can take a couple and like and, and be cool with it. But when it's a whole room full of that, I'm like, you know, I, I just don't, you know, I have to take a deep breath and sort of calm myself down. So for me, the design principle is one in which, A, it needs to reflect the makeup of this country that has adopted me, which is very diverse. And B, it needs to reflect, you know, the, the thing that, that makes me comfortable uh, as a leader. And me, again, my design principle as a leader is that I want a lot of homogeneity. I want a lot of color. I want a lot of ideas. I want a lot of, you know, different beliefs, different walks of life. And, and, I, and, 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 and I believe that if, if, you, if you marry that with excellence and accountability, you get wonderful performance in, in a place that is both loving, inclusive, belonging, and high-performing. I don't think that those are by any means at all uh, exclusive, mutually exclusive from each other. So that's how I think about it. Oh, Manny, I love that. I love that so much. I'm going to be quoting that. <laughs> I'm such a fan and just really enjoy speaking with you. Um, I know, but I'm also want to be cognizant of your time. So I guess pivoting, um, pivoting back to revenue. Let's go back there because again, I could spend all day talking to you about culture. Um, so pivoting back to revenue, you know, as I think about the revenue engine and, you know, this podcast, right, I really hope others will be able to learn how to accelerate revenue growth and really power that revenue engine. So yep. I, I guess what are the, I mean, from your perspective, are there any things that, you know, is there one or two things that maybe you wish that you knew earlier or maybe you would have do, done differently, right? If you could, you know, hit the reset button and do it all over again. Yeah, that's a great question. Um, you know, and, and, and I think you, you will understand this. I, I wish that I would have spent more time thinking about revenue operations as opposed to results. Um, you can fake it until you make it all the way to 10 million, sometimes even all the way to 50 million by breaking a lot of glass and doing a lot of things that are unsustainable. Um, and as an entrepreneur, your job is to make sure that the company is set up for the next stage, not to just get to the current stage. You see what I mean? It's kind of like a great pool player that sets up the shop in such a way that you're the next two shots are up for you mm-hmm. or a great, great chess player. And I didn't really uh, grok that in the early days. The early days was just go, 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 deliver the numbers, deliver the goods, you know, you know, you know, post good numbers to on the board and, 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 and you know, raise more money, do it again, et cetera, as opposed to, you know, sitting back and, and, and figure out, you know, t- you know, if once we get to 200 or a hundred million dollars in AR, et cetera, you know, what does a revenue makeup look like? And what are the, what are the levers of growth? And, you know, and then work back to today and then figure out what does your operations look like to get there? Right. And and if we would have done that, I think we would have saved ourselves a a lot of we would have grown faster actually. One, B, we would have saved ourselves quite a bit of, of turnover in our sales team. 
um, that was relatively unnecessary because it came from a point of like, you know, higher moral the same as opposed to, you know, have a design principle of like, look, we want to be, I don't know, 25% enterprise. Um, or we want to have, I don't know, pick a number, 200, 300, 100,000 account dollars, 100,000 dollar accounts by three years. You know, and those look like, you know, more like corporate and then they're land and expand. And this is the motion. And this is the kind of, you know, um, uh, enablement that you need. And this is kind of the rep that, you know, responds well to that and then go build that out. Mm-hmm. You know, I didn't do that. I was more just deliver the numbers in any way I can. And it was only now that I find myself sort of, you know, looking back at that operational debt and untangling it. And this is why you have people like Harish and, and Anna sort of like helping us, you know, professionalize that part of the operation. And it's literally just to, you know, set the, set the platform for better, better bigger growth. Um, and, and it's not just growth for all sake. It's, it's high quality, high octane kind of growth, meaning the growth that then once you set it up, it begets more growth. You know what I mean? Like once you set up a, a, a land, you have the land, the, the expand teed up. You have the upsell teed up. You have the cross sell teed up. You have the renewal teed up because of the way that you landed that account. So I, I wish I, w- I, w- I had known all that before <laughs> before I started scaling the company. That's awesome. And that is a perfect segue and perfect to kind of uh, way to wrap up because um, obviously, you know, I've been on my soapbox all year about, you know, all 2020 about revenue operations and how important it is to really define your operation process and build the infrastructure, right, to support your revenue um, process to help it scale, right, efficiently Absolutely. and effectively. Absolutely. Um, and I do agree. A lot of companies are very focused on, you know, just get it done early on. And then at some point, it's time to bring in operations and start to structure and, you know, be able to build some scalability and repeatability in your processes. Absolutely. Like, I wish I wish VCs would ask that more as opposed to like, what's your number? Yeah. You know, what is your <laughs> revenue? Who is your revenue operations and what's your plan? I mean, because that is a precursor of not this year's number, but the next 10 years of numbers. Right. Exactly. Well, great. Um, So thank you so much for joining me. Um, I have just, you know, I've, I've loved having this conversation with you. I so appreciate all of your insights and just, um, you know, getting to know some of your background more. Um, But as we wrap up, you know, and before I let you go, um, you're are a very open book <laughs> about you know your company, about your your background, your personality, which you know I I really appreciate. But is there is there like one thing about you about one thing about Manny Medina that you know others might be surprised to learn? Um. So remember that uh, there's a movie called Julie. I think it's called Julie and Julie. Uh huh. About, yep. about the um, cooking, like the, the chef. Cooking. Yep. I, I did that. I, I swear, I lived that movie a year before that movie came out. And, <laughs> and and when I tell people the story, be like, of course you did. Like you watched the movie and you got excited and you did it just like the rest of us. I'm like, no, 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 no. I, I read out a review <laughs> about, the, about the book in the New York Times and I went and bought a used book that it must have been like the second edition mm-hmm. of the, uh, uh, you know, of the of French cookie, the out of French cooking. And I cooked the entire thing. So I, I cooked that entire Julie, Julia Child's book, before, Julia and Julia. Uh, I, I cooked the entire Julia Child's book before the movie, before it was cool. Um, not that many people know that. Oh, that's amazing. So, so you have a love for cooking? or was I, lo- it just I, lo- that- I love cooking. I love, it, it comes from both sides. One is that my, my grandmother and, uh, will always kick me out of the kitchen. So I always wonder <laughs> why, you know, how, how, how does it work? You know what I mean? So I always have this this, you know, enormous drive to really get into the kitchen and, and, and do my own tricks. Um, until then, 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 you know, after cooking French food, you, you never go back. So I, I, I love cooking and I love cooking Ecuadorian food and French food. 
<laughs> well, definitely, that was a surprise to me. But I, uh, I appreciate that. And I, I love that. Um, so thank you again, Manny, for being on the podcast. I really do appreciate your time and just really appreciate the opportunity to learn more about outreach and about you and your journey. Thank you so much. It was a pleasure.